Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 25 of that chapter. We really will be looking at the whole sweep of the chapter, but I'm just going to be reading again verses 13 through 25. You find that on page 1197. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations that he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness or deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's bow together as we approach God's word this morning. Father, you indeed are the God who has spoken. You have made known to us your purposes, and you have shown us your love in the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And so today, as we hear this Word read and preached, Father, I pray that you might fill us with understanding, with gratitude, with humility with courage, and with joy, that we might be your people in word and deed in all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So earlier uh, this week, I was sitting at a table with a couple of friends, and we got it talking about raising our kids uh, in, in faith as, as Christians, an important value to those of us at the table. And one of the men said to me, you know, I think the most important thing my kids got was from their Christian school education. He said, I think it, it was great that we were always a part of an active church and, you know, active in Sunday school, but it was only in thinking about their faith in broad approach, in areas of subject study, subject matter, that they really came to understand Christianity. And I suggested, do you mean they got a Christian worldview? And everyone around the table said, yes, it's the Christian 
worldview that makes a difference. Not, not just the words that we memorize and learn to say, but understanding them and putting them in the context of our lives in the world. Putting them in the context. Our faith needs to have a context and a rootedness in the world around us and in the life we live in that world and not just be an academic exercise. I know I've shared this story with the congregation probably on a number of occasions in previous messages, but I think it's important I want to use it as a backdrop as we get into the passage today. Kathy and I were biking in England, and I had just recently become a Christian, and in the midst of a storm, we took shelter and were found by someone who invited us home to his house for dinner that night. And so as the storm went away, we made our way to his home. And as we were there, Bob was cooking some dinner. And we told him where we were. We had come from Labrie. And I said, I had just become a Christian. And I'm, we were excited about that. And he nodded, you know, affably. And he said, I, I think that's great. I, I just think everybody should believe something. I, I don't think it matters, but I really believe that people should believe something. Well, I was a guest in the home. I didn't feel like, you know, taking up that point of discussion right then. But, but after the meal, as we were cleaning up dishes, he said to me about, about his neighborhood that he lived in, that there was a neighbor who had new, newly moved into a home, and he was a most disagreeable sort. And, and one of the things that he had done was blocked off a parking area where people used to park their cars so as to go in walks across the countryside. Walking is a, a great favorite uh, activity in England. And he said, I just, I can't understand why a person could do that. Uh, you know, he's a, <clears throat> I guess, a former member of parliament. So he's a person of some significance, uh, someone that you would look up to. But he said, I just don't understand how somebody could do that. I, I don't know what he's thinking. And I said to him, Bob, you know, if you'll excuse me, um, a, a bit ago when we were talking, you said that it didn't make any difference what a person believed just as long as they were sincere. And he, he stopped me almost in mid-sentence and said, no, no, no. He said, uh, I, I meant that in, in philosophy and in, in religion. And then he stopped himself and he said, hmm, I guess it does make a difference, doesn't it? I didn't say amen, but I agreed with him. Yeah. <laughs> it does make a difference what we believe. Faith makes a difference. You often hear people who talk about their faith, their faith. They never say what that is, but they just use the word faith as sort of a magic wand to wave over circumstances. And we don't think of faith as something that is reasonable. That, that if we call faith reasonable, it, it's sort of a surprise. How could faith be reasonable? I thought it's, you know, faith is in opposition to reason. It's, it's an alternative means of, of grasping reality. It's mutually incompatible with reason. It, it's a synonym for gullibility and superstition, for what Bertrand Russell called a, quote, conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. A conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. So here's Paul writing to the Romans in the midst of obviously an incredibly secular cultural setting, in the midst of a pagan society with a pagan, if you will, worldview. They probably didn't use that word, but that's what they had. And Paul is writing to those who have heard the gospel, who have come to Christ in the gospel and now are being led astray by those who argue with their, quote, faith. 
And Paul needs now to defend the gospel. And he does so by pointing out, as I said at the beginning of the chapter, he points out that Abraham did not come to salvation, did not come to the point of blessedness through works or circumcision or by law, and Paul will cover these throughout the chapter, but by faith. So this morning, if you've got your bulletin, you want to follow along on the insert. I've entitled my message, A Reasonable Faith, and covered in in three heads, the, the facts of faith, the focus of faith, and then finally, the fruit of faith. That, that Paul begins by going back in the history of the Jewish people to Abraham, their forefather. Verse 1, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? That's, that's the daddy, if you will, of the whole thing. If he was justified by work, says Paul, he had something to brag about, but, but not before God. Because the scripture says, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was, it was Abraham's trust, Abraham's faith in God that was counted as righteousness. Not one who works, says Paul. I mean, if you work, that's just your paycheck. That's what you're owed for your work. But if it's by faith, then anyone can be blessed with the promise of God, of of righteousness. And he he quotes David, verse 6, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Works play no part. Blessed, says David, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, Paul goes on to to challenge, if you will, those who are questioning the role, the place, the reasonableness of faith regarding the issue of circumcision. Is is this blessing that David speaks of and that Abraham knew by faith, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith, says Paul, was counted as righteousness. Now, was it before or after circumcision? Well, if it was before, then, then definitely circumcision played no part in the faith and the righteousness that Abraham had. His righteousness was received by faith, and then circumcision was given as a sign that this one, Abraham, and by extension his family, these ones were God's righteous ones. Now, there's a whole other set of sermons that could go along with that, but just for the moment, Abraham, a righteous one, how do you know? He's marked by circumcision. When? Before he believed or after? Paul says before. Obviously, then, circumcision isn't the reason he's righteous. It is simply the sign of his righteousness. That Abraham's faith was not in himself, His faith was not in his circumstances. His faith was not in his pedigree. His faith was in the God who spoke to him about things to come. So shall your offspring be. You will be the father of many nations. This was the fact of Abraham's faith. The God who spoke to him was the ground, not 
Anything else, not works, not circumcision, not law, which Paul, again, discusses. But I want to go for a minute into this notion of faith. It was interesting today in our Sunday school class, we were in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and Dr. Sproul, um, not Dr., yeah, Dr. Sproul, uh, was looking at the foundation in Ecclesiastes. How are we to understand that book, which many point to, as the beginning of what we have come to know as existentialism. Existentialism. And in existentialism, we hear much about the leap of faith. Kierkegaard is pointed to as as the sort of beginner, or at least the one who articulated that notion of a leap of faith. One, One just steps out into a nothingness by faith and grasps the promise or the <clears throat> hope that there's something there. But, but I want to just very quickly go through that, clarify it for you, so we can move on to, to what faith is here in Paul's focus, which will come next. Kierkegaard looked out upon the, you might say, the terminal thinkers of his day. Who are the honorable men? Who are the people that we look to in our history? And he points to the character of Socrates, Socrates, a philosopher in ancient Greece, was found guilty of misleading or failing to honor uh, the gods of his day. And he taught his students to do that. And because he was found guilty of that, he was sentenced to die by drinking hemlock, a poison. His students begged him, please, just, just recant, just go back on what you were say, teaching. Say, say that, that it was all a mistake, and that way you can live. But, but Socrates refused, and he drank the hemlock and died. And Kierkegaard points to that as sort of the ultimate movement of, my word, not his, of spiritual life. The ultimate movement of spiritual life as Socrates might have known it. And he points to it in this, in this way. That Socrates knew nothing about the gods of the next world or whether there would be any gods of the next world. And so he simply leaped into that unknown that is death by hemlock, not knowing anything about what was out there. And Kierkegaard says you have to honor someone like that. That's a leap of faith. But, says Kierkegaard, that isn't the ultimate and that's not the meaning of faith. Faith in Christian terms is not leaping into an unknown in hope. Faith in Christian terms is walking in fellowship with the God who made us. That through Jesus Christ who came to earth, the word made flesh, we know God in this life, in this world. That's the incarnation. God did not stay out there in abstraction, in distance, but came and drew near to human beings in this world. And that is not a leap of faith into unknown. That is a grasping by faith the reality of the gospel. You see the difference? That one is proclaimed, that biblical faith doesn't come by, by squinching up one's eyes and, and hoping. Christian faith comes by someone telling us the good news of Jesus Christ. It always comes from outside. 
Christian faith is not an internal working and not, not an etern- internal movement. It is a message from outside that is given to us and, and not a leap into subjectivity or emotionalism or the unknown. It is rather accepting the truth, the facts of Jesus Christ coming to earth, living and dying for us and being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God who will return. What, what we affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. That is Christian faith. And it doesn't come from leaping into unknown. It comes from accepting the facts that are given to us in the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, as, as Peter preaches his sermon and, and tells who Jesus Christ is to the crowd around him, he closes that sermon, if you will, with these words. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, which was the Old Testament long expected one. Peter says to them, everybody know for sure this is what God did, that God made him Lord and Christ, that you crucified him. Those are the facts of the faith that we are called to receive. Not, to, not a leap of faith, but, if you will, a humble reception in, in repentance and in thanksgiving and in joy that our God has washed our sins away, has made us clean, has brought us into fellowship with himself, that we might live not only in this life, in, him, in and with his presence, but in the life to come that we will always be with the Lord. Now, that's the, that's the facts of faith that we are called to accept. What are they grounded on? What is the focus of faith? A definition, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. Again, faith is believing or trusting a person and the reasonableness of our faith depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It's, it's always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. It's always reasonable to do that. And there's nobody more trustworthy than God. And this is what Paul says as he unfolds the story of Abraham. Abraham received the promise, he says, in verse 13. And not through law, because the law hadn't been given yet. And we've established, not through circumcision, because his promise and his righteousness came before circumcision it is his faith in the promise but not the promise alone it is the God who gave that promise it is the God who called from death the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel but for Abraham called from death what he called from death Abraham's own being he called from death Sarah's barrenness. The, the Greek word really there is deadness. Abraham's dead and Sarah's dead. And call, God calls from the dead these two and gives to them the promised seed, which at that point is Isaac, who then unfolds, of course, into Jacob and the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel. And from them, all the nations of the world are blessed. Paul says... 
It's not through circumcision. It's not through works. It's not through law. It is faith alone because if it's by faith, then you and I do not need to be Israelites. We do not have to be in a geographical area. We do not have to live in a certain period of time. But this promise comes to anyone and everyone, no matter where, no matter when, who hears and receives by faith this message of a God who has acted in love to redeem a people. And Abraham's faith in that God was grounded in his knowledge that that God not only was the God of resurrection, in, in raising, if you will, from the dead both his and Sarah's bodies, but he was the God of creation. This, this very world in which Abraham tended flocks, this world in which he managed his household, this world in which he was promised to be the father of many nations, this world was created by God. Now, just, just a little sidebar there, if you will. Unless we have that down, if we have doubts about that, if we are led astray by humanistic uh, naturalism, by philosophical materialism, if we have doubts on that front, we do not believe that God created the world. It's as simple as that. Either God did it, or it just kind of came out of nowhere in a big bang, and nobody can explain why or how. That's where a worldview comes into importance. You... you have to have a world in which a God is active and who has created, who has redeemed, in order to have a Christian faith. Ultimately, you can't have a Christian faith in a world that doesn't have a God. A self-generating and evolving, a self-propagating world does not have a God in it. And without a God who is faithful and acts to redeem us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we do not have salvation. And so a worldview to understand that is essential. You may be buffeted by things in your life. We've got an array now of of teenage granddaughters. You couldn't give me all the tea in China to be a teenage granddaughter. It is just too hard. It's too hard. There are too many forces, too much dynamics, you know, too many phone messages and too many friends on Facebook. There's just too much to handle. And unless my granddaughters and our children are grounded in a world which we know is created by a God who loves us, we will be blown to and fro. And my, my granddaughters will be like a cork bobbing on waves. We, we cannot have a solid conviction of the gospel in a world in which we doubt the God who creates and the God who raises from the dead. So that's the focus of faith. Be, behind all of the promises that Abraham receives, behind all of the promises that you and I grasp, is the character of God. God Abraham looked, it says, in verse 19, he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body as good as dead, or when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong or was strong in his faith. 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It's been said that, you know, we we live, I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said, we live not by explanations, but by promises. 
And Abraham believed this promise of God and did not waver in his faith, but said, the God who made it all to begin with, the God who can raise Sarah and me from the dead, physically speaking, reproductively speaking, even though that's against all hope, even that's against everything that the world would say is true, we know that this is a God who acts in history and in human lives to bring about his purposes. And Abraham believed that about God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul points out as well that Abraham could have wavered. I mean, the very fact that he didn't means that it was a possibility. So one of the responses to hearing God's promise, not just to Abraham, but to you and me, in the gospel, is we can like, not so sure. We, we can have unbelief or faith. And, and if we have unbelief, we waver. And if we, on the other hand, believe in God, then we strengthen ourselves by knowing who God is and what God has done, and we let him be God. I was reading just recently um, Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and he was looking at Mark chapter 9, where, where the father comes to Jesus um, and says he, his son has been troubled by demons that cast him down. He foams at the mouth, etc. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please help me. And Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And Spurgeon makes the point that the if is in the wrong place. It's not if Jesus can, it is Jesus can if you believe. See the difference? One little word in the wrong place. If you can, and Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. Who believes? The one who believes in Christ has the power of Christ to do things. The one who believes in God has the power of God to do things. And God says, I will make you the father of many nations. And Abraham did what? He believed. Why? Not because he was uncertain about what God could do, but that he was certain what God could do. And he strengthened himself in that faith and entered into, then, this life of righteousness. Did he pass every test? No. You can read the life of Abraham. He didn't become perfect. You know, his life wasn't suddenly just all ups and ups and ups and no downs. In his Life wasn't one of success after success. But it was a life of faithfulness in faith to the God who had called him and who had accounted him righteous. And that leads me then to the the final point, to the fruit of, of faith. Paul says, verse 22, the words it was counted to him, that is to Abraham, were not written just for Abraham. It wasn't like a pat on the back for Abraham. It was written for us also. It will be counted to us. What's counted to us? The righteousness that Abraham had by faith will be counted to us who have faith, who believe in the God who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You know, if we think about it for a moment... 
One of the challenges that we have, in fact, I would suggest that many of the challenges that we have are the ones that we encounter when we look in the mirror. And we see that person there looking back at us. And we think, I remember that word. I remember that act. I remember that habit. I remember that deed. I remember that disaster. How could God love me? And we doubt. We doubt. But Paul says... Righteousness is counted to us who believe in God, who raised from the dead Jesus, delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, the fact that Jesus died is the foundation of your looking the guy in the mirror in the eye and saying, there's now no condemnation for you. Now, that's hard for some of us. That's very hard for some. It depends on how we were raised and maybe how we came to faith. But it's very hard to look in the eyes of the person you know best and say, forget about what you think of yourself. That won't help you be righteous. Only the gift of God through salvation by faith in Jesus Christ makes us righteous. And in that righteousness, then, we don't take a leap of faith, but we walk in this world with the God who is present to us by his indwelling Holy Spirit. And Kierkegaard points out that, that unlike Socrates, who leaps into the unknown, not knowing the gods, when we come to the end of our life, we, we simply find our hand being taken by the hand of the God whom we have walked with and known throughout our lives. That, it, that it's simply, a, a, if you will, a step over a threshold into a new existence in the presence of and accompanied by and made possible by the God who has loved us with an everlasting love and who made that love known to us in the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins, for our sins. It, in some ways, it, it's more reasonable for us to believe in God than it was for Abraham because we have the gospel. We have, a, if you will, a history book written about the man who lived and died and was raised from the dead for us. We, we can almost touch him through that. And of course, by his spirit, he touches us. But that's sometimes the very point of our doubt when we look in the mirror and we think, but how could he love me? Because you're not saved by works or lack thereof. You're not saved by, by some religious tradition by, by some walk down the sawdust trail when you were a teenager or even an adult. You know, we're not saved by those things. We are saved by Jesus. Calvin writes about that phenomena this way. He says, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten us with his wrath. What then, asks Calvin, is to be done? Remember nothing else of this morning's sermon. Remember this line. 
we must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. The man in the mirror is a liar almost every day and every look because that man would say, yeah, sure, God loves you. But God says he loves you. And therefore, as Calvin says, we must with closed eyes, don't look at the guy in the mirror, pay no attention to the man in the mirror. We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. And now, move to 5.1. We didn't read from 5, but why? 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off yourself and put them on the Savior who has died for you and has been raised for you and who lives for you and will return for you. And your faith will not only be reasonable, it'll be the most precious, most joyous, most substantial thing in your entire life. And to God then be the glory. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, you are a great and gracious God, the almighty creator of all things, the sustainer of them all. Lord, the one whose purpose rules and whose kingdom shall indeed come. And we pray that be the case. But Lord, I pray this morning for each of us who see the person in the mirror and then doubt and tremble that we would hear the words of the gospel and know that it is by faith that we have received our righteousness, that is by the works of Jesus and by the covenant you have made in and through him that we live and move and have our being and look forward to life in this world, which gives you glory and brings blessing to others and a life that we shall enjoy in eternity in your presence. Father, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.